Well, this evening, Isaiah chapter 38, an exciting section. Good Hard Lessons is the title. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I just love the Word of God. After all these years, um, it, it, is, it hasn't lost anything. It has gained so much. Even in my devotions, it's just such, uh, it is what God says to us. King Hezekiah, he's a good king. But he had to learn some hard lessons, and hard lessons that people learn are transferable, not automatically. I mean, you can miss out, they could mess up, but uh, we learn from the experiences of those in the Scripture. It's supposed to show up in our own lives. It is one way the Bible yields its treasures to those who will dig for it. It's hard work learning the Word of God, and it's hard work to execute the things that we've learned. We're always trying to do better because it is that important. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, this is the Word of God. Now, this section is a parallel section to 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles 32 also. But we have so much here, we're going to dig right into it. Verse 1, in those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, <clears throat> and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Well, these events take place before the last two chapters, chapters 36 and 37, leading up to the Assyrian invasion. And it's impending, they know it's coming, and here's he, the king, and now he gets a terminal disease on top of dealing with the Assyrians and all the other things that come with being king. Uh, this is the second time the Assyrians have come in force to, uh, into Judah, but they're coming to take Jerusalem. And uh, it's not surprising that the sequence is, is out of order. It's how they, they put together the scriptures, but it's not something that is hidden, you can find it. And so Hezekiah, the king, the good king, he's, he's sick and he's, he's dying. It says he's near death. He's on his deathbed. This adds context and it also adds that human element. It starts drawing us in emotionally to what he's going through. And so we read in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Very blunt from the, from the prophet. He doesn't mince words. He likes Hezekiah. Well, all the indications that he is certainly, he, they are friends. <clears throat> and what he just tells, God said you're going to die. And that alone is going to be very interesting for us because God is going to reverse that uh, because of the prayer of Hezekiah. And uh, uh, anyway, God is going to use this near-death experience of the prophet to give prophecy, and to give doctrine. The lessons will fly off the page as we move forward. Verse 2, Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Well, one of the court officers noticed this, and it made its way uh, into the history books. He's probably choking back tears. He doesn't want to die. And as a Christian, I've always been puzzled by this because... I'm hoping when it's my turn, I'm, I'm eager. Uh, not, not overly eager. I mean, it's not my right. But, you know, I, I'm hoping. It's like, whew, I'm getting out of here. And I'm going to heaven. But 
the doctrine of the Jews concerning Sheol, the underworld, the afterlife, wasn't as developed in all of them as it is for us. It was in some. For instance, David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. He was able, David was able to see that there was a heaven waiting for him, and it was going to be glorious. But a lot of the Jews weren't so clear, which is one of the reasons, when we'll see as he begins to, when he writes his psalm, we'll see why he is not as ready as you would think a righteous king should be. At least that, that's my take on it. And everybody is different. There's no shame in, in facing the uncertainty with reservations. It's not laying a guilt on any, anyone. Uh, but, you know, we all go through, as we get older, we say, well, how, you know, how am I going to go out? If, and who knows, right? So many scenarios. But ideally, if I'm writing the script, it's, it's going to be uh, something that is like Stephen. I'll see the Lord and be excited. Anyway, he's devastated by the prophet's message. He's nowhere on earth to turn. So he turns to God. Literally turning to the wall, away from everybody else, he's going to begin to pray, immediately calling on the Lord. And at this point, you know, there's nothing scriptural to say to him. It would have been very hollow at this moment to try to encourage him. We have to let it play out. And the prophet does that. Isaiah delivers the message, and he leaves. And God's going to talk to Isaiah because he's, he's such a great prophet. I mean, it's just how this works. Verse, verse 3, uh, the king is speaking, and this is what he said to the Lord. Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So the historian is opening it up for us. He turns away. He doesn't want anybody to see. He's about to break down. Paul said the same thing to the Sanhedrin under trial, and they smacked him in the mouth for saying, I've given God everything I've got. You're not saying I'm perfect. Hezekiah is saying, Lord, I, I have tried to follow you according to the law. I've not been an idolater. And uh, truth is paramount. It should be. It's not with a lot of Christians. Truth is secondary. Preference is primary. How you feel. When I was a Christian, I'd go out to Costa Mesa, and I visited all the Calvaries from Southern California, all the bigger ones and, and other places. And all the other places, they really put a lot of emphasis on music. You get to Costa Mesa, there was no emphasis. It was like, yeah, well, you know, whatever. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to get to the Word. And I used to think that maybe they were missing, maybe Pastor Chuck's missing something here. No, I found out it's the other way around. He majored in the majors, not the emotions. He felt that if you love the Word of God, your feelings would be drawn in also. I get emotional reading God's Word at times. And, uh, uh, I mean, I love to sing too, uh, but I get emotional with that also. But how can I sing with any integrity if I don't understand what I'm singing? Doctrine is essential truth according to the scriptures. Hopefully we're not 
losing our youth when we raise them up in the ways of Christ to understand with all of the emotional things they have, especially our teens, with all the emotional things that's going on in their life, truth is primary. Well, at this point, notice Hezekiah will not be chastened for how he handles this. God will not rebuke him. As a matter of fact, God's going to reward him. And, uh, you know, when you're terminally, when someone is facing a terminal illness, Satan loves to come along and say, well, it's because you're a sinner. You've done, you've done this and you've done that. And it's a lie. Uh, all, everything that is wrong in this life is because of original sin. And sickness is usually, in the life of the believer, a, par- a product of sin, the curse upon humanity, not some individual act. The proof of that as a rule, is this. If it were any other way, we'd all be sick. Every, if, you, if, we were, if God called us, you, you know, you did that wrong, now I'm gonna, you're going to get sick. We'd all be home in bed right now. So, uh, anyway, that's how the devil is. And the disciples asked Jesus, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, there's that mindset. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And then he takes it to another level. And he says, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. But so that you can see me heal him. You've got to love that. The Lord says, you know, he's not, he's not cursed because he did something wrong. He's cursed because he's born into a world that is cursed. And, uh, and of course, the Lord gave him his sight. Well, Hezekiah, he walks before the Lord. And uh, he's going to be healed, and he's going to be puffed up because of it. Has God ever blessed you, and the next thing you've noticed, you've got a little swagger, a little arrogance or something going on there? You say, no, no, I've never done that. Well, don't think that you won't be tested at some point. Not necessarily, you might not be, but you might. Second Chronicles 32 in the parallel passage. In those days, Hezekiah was sick near death, and he prayed to Yahweh. And he spoke to him and gave him a sign. Hezekiah spoke to Yahweh, God. God speaks back to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, gives him a sign that he's going to survive. And then it says, but Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Now God is going to punish and it doesn't say how he's going to, but he's healed, and he, he does the wrong thing with it. He gets pride, and now God's going to deal with him on that. Now, this time, it is a punishment. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of Yahweh did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So there's so much there's so much teaching just swirling around this one event of a sick king who learned this hard lesson that life is hard. God is good. And don't abuse the things that God gives you because it can come with a chastening. And a chastening can be more than a slap on the wrist. And that's what Second Chronicles 32 is telling us. One of the lessons that we, we learn from Hezekiah's experiences. And, he, and it says here in verse 3 of Isaiah 38, it says, And have done, he's continuing to speak to the Lord, and have done what is good in your sight. 
So again, he tried his best. He's instituting all sorts of reforms in, in Judah and tried in Jerusalem, getting rid of the pagan altars and bringing the people back to God. And then he gets this sickness, uh, in addition to the Assyrian threat that stayed with them all the time. Well, uh, because he did right before the Lord did not guarantee that he would always do right, it did not insulate him from life and the troubles that we all face. It says, and Hezekiah wept bitterly. This godly man was overwhelmed by the news of his doom. He wept hard and he wept uncontrollably. That, he did not care for God's will at this time. Not enough to turn against God, as some do. Judas Iscariot didn't care for how the Messiah was, was handling things. If indeed in the head of Judas, if indeed Jesus is Messiah. And look what happened. But Hezekiah, he doesn't like this sentence at all. And yet, he, again, he doesn't get rebuked by God. He faces it with prayer. He goes to God with it. It is a heartbreaking moment for all those who were watching this because they were helpless. There was nothing they could do. At best, they could intercede for him. But that would not guarantee. You know, when we pray to God, it's not an ultimatum or it's not a rabbit's foot or, you know, magic wand where we're going to get what we want because we've been so sincere in prayer. That is a very immature approach. Jesus taught us, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. We are always subject to the desires of the king. And uh, so he weeps. Because he knows death is, is, from this perspective, is merciless from this point of view. And seldom does it turn back from its reaping. He knows that. He's probably 38, 39 years old at this time. We have some time stamps. I'm not going to get into any of that because we'll lose so many of the other applications time-wise. We'll get to them. And uh, in taking us from this life, it can be long and drawn out, unfair. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's our last enemy. And it will be destroyed for the righteous. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when when he said that, he was showing us that death was nothing to fear for the believer. That step into the unknown. Well, it's not into the unknown. We have faith. That faith is trusting what's been revealed. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. And, you know, again, so we we work to build our faith up. To be ready for whatever God is going to do in our lives. So the Bible records that moment of death in the life of our Lord. And we are the servants. And we are always looking to learn from what Christ has either put forth in his own life or through the lives of others whom he is the author and finisher of their faith. Now, again, he did not want to die, and he is very afraid. It's, just not, it's not just disappointment causing, he, his fear. And fear is not something you can always turn off. Sometimes you can. Sometimes you find the strength, you shut that down, you get an attitude, like defiant attitude. I'm, I'm taking this. And other times, it's, you're scrambling. Uh, that's okay. You, you scramble with the Lord. That, that's the point. 
And uh, there's the other stuff too, you know, we, we have this self-preservation characterizes all of us. It's a thought of Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, succeeding. And, he's, you know, this is other things too. Verse 4, and the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, uh, now, so uh, let me just give you the background because we know this from Second Kings 20, another uh, parallel part. Isaiah gives him the word. In verse 5, God will say to Isaiah, go, which means he's not there now. He has to go back. So the word comes to Isaiah again. When he first delivers the message, he says, thus says the Lord, you're going to die. That's God's word. He leaves. He's in the courtyard. And God is going to turn him around with an amended word. Now he's going to get some doctrine. So just after he tells Hezekiah that he's going, not going to survive, he departs. Second Kings chapter 20. Isaiah leaves out these parts, but again, we can find them in other sections. And it happened before Isaiah had gone into the middle court that the word of Yahweh came to him saying, and then picks up this story. Verse 5 now of Isaiah 38. Go, because he's not with Hezekiah, and tell Hezekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will add to your days 15 years. Now Hezekiah was a big fan of King David. We know that from his writings and what he did. He, just, he was again a remarkable king, especially when so many of them were scoundrels. This, is, this statement from God is of first-class importance to us in understanding prophecy. It removes entirely from prophecy the, the realm of fatalism. That, oh, you know, it's already been decided. You can't change it. It's done. Well, that's not true. That's not what's happening here. This tells us that we have a say-so in our life with God to some degree. Now, it doesn't mean that we can manipulate God, move him away from what he wants. It does say we have free will. And it does say God listens to us. And while Isaiah walked, Hezekiah prayed. So Isaiah is, you know, walking in the courtyard. He's still up there praying. God is multitasking. He couldn't be God if he was infinitely superior. Isaiah walked, Hezekiah prayed, God intervened. And God does not always do it this way. It is not a cookie-cut formula. But the doctrine comes out. So there is the perfect will of God, which is never changing. God, the sun will rise tomorrow. Nothing's going to stop that. God has ordained this. And people can affect that. Then there is the permitted will of God. Where it's not ideal, but he's going to let it happen. What this is, is the adjusted will of God. In each case, there's a reason. It's not random. It's not, whoa, gee, you know, he just did it. Here are the biblical examples to back up what I'm saying. Of course, we know the Genesis story of creation and the universe is in its place. That's perfect. The Jews, they were promised the land known as Israel, everything east of the Jordan. But... Two and a half tribes wanted to be west of the Jordan. Well, that wasn't part of the plan. And God granted it. He permitted that. He adjusted his will, and that became promised land also. Balaam. 
Balaam was a prophet of, of God, even though he was a Gentile prophet. The Bible says he was a prophet, and he became an apostate prophet. And he insisted on flirting with the riches of Balak the king and the curses. And of course, ultimately, God allowed him. All right, fine, go. I've made my statement to you. A dumb donkey has spoken to you. If you can't figure that out, you're going to reap what you sow. And in this case, he did. Balaam was killed by the Jews. Because he had not only become an apostate, he had become an enemy of God's people. And the Jews killed him with, with, with the spear. The Jews, at one point in their history, began whining about, we want a king like the Gentiles have kings. Samuel was devastated by that. He took it personally. And God said, don't take it personally. This is against me. And God adjusted his ways. Okay, let him have a king. God had sent Jonah to Nineveh. Forty days, you're done. But Nineveh did not burn in 40 days because God adjusted his will because the people repented. And now Hezekiah is asking for a reversal a divine decision that will adjust, and he gets it. God promised through Jeremiah the prophet to bless or to judge depending on the behavior of the people. In Jeremiah 18.10, he says, if the people, if I have sentenced them to doom and they repent, I will restrain myself from, from judgment. So, again, we have the perfect will of God, the permitted will of God, and the adjusted will of God. He is sovereign over all of it. We, can, we, have some, we have our role to play, and we've got to find what that role is. And Christ was on the cross, and uh, he was in the perfect will of God. Willfully. Willfully so. Uh, anyway, Hezekiah asked for a reversal of the div- divine decision, uh, and we find that prayer defeats fatalism. You cannot, you, we don't come to our scripture and say, ah, it's already written, you, you can't change it, it's done. Well, it's not a bureaucracy we're dealing with, it's not VDOT. Uh, you know, God is, um, is sometimes he's, he's adamant, and that come, that's why it's so meaningful to have a relationship with God. Because in that relationship is the treasure of, okay, is that what you want? That's what we'll do. See, Stephen didn't protest, you know, I, I don't want to get stoned to death. He accepted it. He went into it ready for that. Well, so it is the prerogative of God to adjust his response however he chooses. He never does it in violation of righteousness. Unlike the kings of the Medes and the Persians. Remember when Daniel was sentenced to, to the lion's den? He said, well, you can't reverse that, O king. Well, God says, well, yeah, I can. Because he's, he's not going to let himself get cornered anyway into something that's nefarious. Now, this is different from when Nathan went to David. David well, David went to Nathan. David, David says to the prophet Nathan, I want to build God a house. He the, the Ark of the Covenant's in a tent. That's not right. I'm in a palace. Nathan said, yeah, that's a good idea. Go for it, David. What could be wrong with that? And then Nathan goes home. He's humming, <laughs> fixing himself a sandwich. No, I don't know what he was doing. It would probably be hummus or falafel. Anyway, God says to Nathan, you know, I don't want David to build a house. You have to go back and you have to tell him. <laughs> and he, he brings David so much more than just no. He explains it to David and he uses Nathan to do it. Both men, God protects both their integrity. 
And, and so it's a little different here. Isaiah, when he goes and says, you're going to die, that was God's word. And when he comes back and says, okay, God has given you 15 years, that is not a contradiction. Uh, that is an amendment. Uh, so it, uh, it works out perfectly. It's good for our doctrine. Now, Hezekiah lived additional 15 years. The belief is that he had no son at this time. And during those 15 years, he gives birth, to, his wife does, of course, to Manasseh. Yeah, we don't go that way. Our pronouns, you know what they are. He and her, and they don't change. Anyway, Manasseh will take the throne. And he, when, he was, when, when Manasseh was 12, well, he gets 15 years to live. So we know he was born after this event. There's some possibility outline, but not likely. So you, that causes a whole nother set of problems. Well, what if he just died then? Well, we don't know who would have succeeded to the throne and maintained the line of Messiah for Josiah to come along and then eventually Christ. God had it under control. Uh, our concern, our lesson, is with the hard lesson of the king and not all the, well, what ifs. Verse 6 I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Well, that tells us a time stamp for us, tells us that this was before the angel of the Lord came and wiped out the 185,000 Assyrian troops in a night. And so we know he's, he, he gets sick before them, and he goes through these, this pride issue at the same time. But the impending Jerusalem siege is coming nonetheless. Verse 7, and this is a sign to you from Yahweh that... Yahweh will do this thing which he has spoken. Now, of course, when it says Lord, if it's, and depending on the translation, how the format they use, they signal that it's the covenant name Yahweh and not Lord, Adonai versus Yahweh. So I, I use the name. Uh, you, could, you could also use Jehovah because scholars aren't sure which is the most accurate, though they lean towards Yahweh. Uh, and it's very meaningful. The covenant name of God indicates a relationship, a hands-on relationship between God and the faithful. Uh, so it's more than just Lord. Anyway, um, well, Sarah called Abraham Lord, but not he did, she did not call him Yahweh. Verse 8, Behold, I will bring the shadow of the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial, by which it had gone down. Isaiah leaves out a lot of information, and then he also fragments it. But we have Second Kings and Chronicles, and that puts it in order so that we know what's going on. For example, God gave him a choice, Kings tells us. Do you want the sundial to go up 10 degrees or back? And Hezekiah says, well, going up is easier because that's the direction we're going in. To go back, that would really be impressive. And so did God actually turn the earth back 10 degrees, uh, you know, in time, uh, 20 minutes or so? Or did he um, just do the sundial? It's a miracle. And the, what makes a miracle a miracle is science can't define it, which irritates them, which delights us. So, well, does that bother you that God can do miracles and you can't explain it? That's why it's a miracle. Anyway, they used to, years ago there was a, special on television, the miracles of the Bible, and they had scientists say, well, dude, what he could have done to roll back this, they like, shut up, it's a miracle. I don't need your stamp of approval. I mean, you're a pretty smart guy and all, but when it comes to this, you're pretty dumb, aren't you? 
Well, I mean, I, you, you think that. I do. Anyway, coming back to <laughs> this. Well, I, let me pause there. It is a fact that people need to understand just because they get something right doesn't mean that they're always right. Um, and we all have to guard against that. There are, if, if I ask a contractor to come over to my house, I'm not asking him to give me a, a sermon on Galatians. I can give him one. What I need him to do is fix my faucet or something else. And so, yeah, there's no loss of pride there. I'm, I'm second fiddle in that case. Anyway, I think it was Spurgeon that said, if you're third fiddle in the band, be the best third fiddle they've got. And it's just knowing that what your role is and not letting the pride overturn you. Anyway, back to this verse 8. Behold, I will bring the sundial back. Uh, the shadow on the sundial, which goes down with the sun, on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. This sundial of Ahaz, Ahaz, God offered him miracles and he refused. So... Uh, I'm thinking how much to comment on this verse 8. We're coming back to the miracle and, and how it occurred, it likely was global. Um, I have no problem with God being able to do something that I can explain. What's he supposed to do? There are those that don't believe in the miracles. So is God supposed to re-perform the miracles for every generation and every people of that generation so that they can believe? Well, he's not going to subject himself to that. He, is, he has created another avenue, and it is called faith. And faith is established by reason, but it goes beyond reason. And for us, uh, we have so much information available to us concerning the Bible and its prophecies that we have no reason to doubt what the Bible teaches. There have been saints before us who have died martyrs with less verification. They had enough to know. This is the truth. Nobody else is dealing with my sin except Jesus Christ. So that keeps the standard very high and takes away excuses. Now we come to verse 9. This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. So God says, I'm going to give you 15 years. That ends that episode. During the time, now Isaiah is going to come back at the end and tell them to put figs on the, on the poultice, on, on the, the growth. In Kings, it's put right in sequence. You, you, so you've you got to know, he's going to jump around a little bit, so when we get to it, you have a better chance of following it. Hezekiah is, is healed. And some time probably comes by before he uh, writes this song to the Lord. So verse 39, this is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. And I say song and not, it is a, 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 an ode of gratitude uh, to the Lord returning on his returning from the gates of death. Verse 10, I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. And so this, you know, it's not fair. The prime of my life, I'm being robbed of the best. Now, from the Christian perspective, we know. Listen, everything gets deleted when you get to heaven. You know, you're gonna, there's a prime up there waiting for us. It's 
matchless, although there are the rewards and the serving factors. But he felt it was unfair. And, you know, again, you look at this from the New Testament, and you say, this is the lower road. The higher road would have been, uh, Lord, you take me whenever you want. I'm good. Stephen was probably in his prime. He's, again, uh, he began to reign when he was 25 years old, this king did. And the invasion happened in the 14th year. So that tells us he's about 38, 39 years of age. And he's done so much, and he knows this. He's done so much in fortifying Jerusalem against Assyria, as well as spiritually letting Isaiah have the reign that he needs to influence the people. But I do believe, I, I, I don't think anyone in heaven looks back and says, well, you know, I wish I could have stayed longer. Maybe there is some. I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think that forgetting those things which are behind. But this life is all we know. And we're built to um, hold on to it and not treat it carelessly. Of course, we have a flesh that tries to disregard that, but the spirit knows better. Verse 11, I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord. Uh, it really reads, I shall not see Yah, Yah, Yahweh, Yahweh. And it's a term of endearment in its shortened form. I said, I shall not see Yah, the Yahweh, in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Again, from the Christian perspective, uh, I want the Lord to say today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, the Hebrew repetition of, is when it's something exceptional. So that's what he's doing here. It's, it's part of their, how, how they, their literature, how they put together their writings and saying, I, I shall see, yah, yah. And it's, you know, it's, it's quite powerful when you look at it that way. But he's still lamenting leaving the land of the living and that he would see his friends no more. So you see, some of the Jews, their view of afterlife, of Sheol at this time, was not where it's going to be once we get our, again, the New Testament given to us and Christ begins to teach us. Even just when the Lord says, today you will be with me in paradise. This doctrine just flies all off the page from that one. Imagine if Isaiah said, today you will be in paradise, Hezekiah. Why are you asking to stay? But again, it was limited there. Doctrine evolves, um, and but that does not mean that the less doctrine makes you less righteous because... You know, we had more. We have more insight about Jesus Christ than Isaiah had, and yet, who's willing to say, "Well, I'm more righteous than Isaiah"? You'd be nuts to say something like that. Anyway, verse twelve: My lifespan is gone, taken from me, like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom, from day until night. You make an end of me. So he's setting up the song. He's going to rejoice in the end, but he's setting it up where he was in his thinking. How, mess, how messed up this was to him. Um, <clears throat> and incidentally, a person can have multiple primes of their life, especially if you have two professions. You have a prime in that profession. You maybe you you know you're doing a work that requires you know youth and strength, and then you get older and you have a different profession and you have another prime uh, potentially. Well. He was king, and he said, boy, I'm, I'm doing the best I can do, and this is being stripped from me. Death is taking down my tent. That's a metaphor that both Peter and Paul use in Corinthians and Second Peter also to describe death. 
uh, this body is just a tent. And the time's going to come where the tent's going to be taken down. And then I will receive a, a new body and uh, a Christ-likeness that um, he has promised. I will see him and be like him, though not in his divinity. Uh, anyway, um, uh, he, he's being cut off before... He's being cut off before the pattern is complete. That's what he, the metaphor when he talks about the loom. You know, they're working on the, the, the whatever it is. But before they finish, they cut it off. That's what he's saying. That's what's happening to me. He's in the shadow of death, but he fears it, unlike David in, in the psalm. Uh, the believer today, where, what does the Bible teach us about our lifespan because the Old Testament prophets and Moses would talk, you know, God has he's measured out our time. Well, we have this interesting verse from Revelation 7. And uh, we draw application from these kinds of statements in Scripture. This is how we know about the Trinity and how we know about salvation. Just these, these statements of God. Well, these are the two witnesses that come in the days of the Great Tribulation during Antichrist rule. And they're going to, you know, they have the power to kill people with their word. <clears throat> but Revelation 11 talks about their death. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. When they finish their testimony, that applies to all believers. Can we overrule that? You, we certainly can. Should we worry about that? I, not if you're abiding with Christ. No, absolutely not. When my work is done as a believer, God will call me home. And this is, uh, I think it's glorious. Knowing what, what, a, what a waste. Now we know those two servants, uh, their testimony is expanded. Because they get up and they ascend to heaven. And uh, that, uh, that's amazing. We won't be there for that. Verse 13. I have considered until morning like a lion. So he breaks all my bones from the day until night. You are an end of me. This is Job-esque. Job said things like this. Because Job was, man, talk about the, the greatest hurt locker in the Bible. was Job's. Uh, I mean, just add up what he lost. According to humans, Christ is on another level because of the spiritual element, of course. Anyway, what he's saying is that, you know, um, I, I, I held my place till morning, but he was struggling because he mentions day and night that the pain was violent and he felt like a lion breaking his bones. Uh, he was helpless and he was, in, he was hurting physically. <clears throat> Verse 14, like a crane or a swallow, so I chattered, I mourned like a dove. My eyes fell from looking upward. O Yahweh, I am oppressed, undertake for me. So he's like David in the Psalms. You know, Lord, I've just spent calling out on you. I've got nothing left. I've been calling and calling and you're not answering. And yet still calling. And uh, he had hoped that he would get well. But he got worse. That's, that's what he's saying in verse 14. Now we pick up verse 15, Isaiah 38. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years <clears throat> in bitterness of my soul. <clears throat> so he now is going to talk about his recovery. The relief of pain is a euphoric feeling. When you're in pain and that pain goes, I mean, heavy pain, and you, that pain goes away, I mean, you just, 
it's, it's just it's an amazing time as, as most of us learn. Maybe you have migraines, suffering from migraines, and if, if they go right away, as if gradually, you're like, man, I feel good. Job chapter 9, verse 24, Job said, essentially, everything I'm going through had first, to, it had to first pass the desk of God for approval. And so he says, just this little statement, he says it in other places too, but he says, if not he, who else could it be? No one's got this sovereignty like him, and that is doctrinal. Because Satan is not an alternate God or a lesser God. He is a created being, and he is foul through and through. And uh, Job knew that uh, God is, you know, he just took it all to the Lord. He didn't know the, the spiritual war that he was involved with. That comes later in his life. But we get, we get his uh, determination uh, and his honesty, his integrity, uh, before he really even understands what's happening to his life. And we get it in the first few chapters, but he, did, he didn't have Job chapter 1 and 2 to refer to. He was Job chapter 1 and 2. It says, in my bitterness of soul. Well, that's where he learned the lesson. That's, you know, it says of the Lord, he learned obedience by the things he, he, he suffered. Well, that was in our view, because Christ couldn't learn God. God the Son. But he did experience in our view. It was for us. Well, not with Hezekiah, he is learning. These are hard lessons. And uh, he learned through this bitter, this bitter experience shaped his outlook in life. Without which he never would have grown to this level and he never forgot. It can't be documented on how beneficial this was to people in his life. What, how he matured as a believer after this experience. Maybe when Hezekiah got to heaven, he found out how many people were blessed by his righteousness because of this suffering. Well, that's the pattern that the scripture gives to us. Um, it's, it's, it's quite, they're, they're just quite amazing, the outlooks in, in Scripture. You, you can't keep up with them. Um, in my devotional time as a young, younger believer and pastor, it would, I'd get three chapters, maybe four every morning. Now, if I can get a few verses, not because I don't have time, I've got more time now than ever for this, but I get halt, I stop, man, I've got to write. I, this is the insight of life. Uh, at least in, for me, uh, and you just, it, it's, it becomes more rich the more you work it. Anyway, verse 16, O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit, so you will restore me and make me alive. Verse 17, indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption for you have cast all my sins behind your back. And so he just now he's pouring out. He's, he's sort of putting everything he said about his sorrow in its place. In the big picture. That God was not to punish, punishing him as his sins deserved. But God in his love restored him for 15 years. But he still had to die. The day would still come when he would die. And he says, you have cast all my sins behind your back. This is one of the greatest healings. This is the greatest healing known to man. To have the curse upon us just taken away. This is salvation. And this knowledge allows us to stare down death's hallway. 
reducing, if not removing, the terror. Um, so I just want to review here what God does with the sins of the righteous. And as I look at this list, I say to myself, this never gets old to me, so it probably won't get old to you either. In Psalm 103, God says that he removes our sins as far as east is from west. That's a long way. In Isaiah 38, 17, this verse, uh, the sins are cast behind his back out of his sight. When he looks at us, the sins aren't in front. They're gone because of Christ. They're washed away. In Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I have forgotten your sins. You see, Lord, remember when I did what? No, I don't remember that. We're moving forward. In Isaiah 44, verse 22, he says he blots out our sins like a thick cloud. has just blocked them out. You can't see them. In Micah, chapter 7, verse 19, he has cast all of our sins into the sea. Well, you know, you want to get rid of something, you throw it in the sea, it's gone. In Jude 24, and I just chose one from the New Testament, there are many. He says that he is able to present us faultless with exceeding joy. So when he says here that it's the love of God that did this, we answer that. So we've got some New Testament verses that the Christian should know. Be more mindful of, I think, many times. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You don't separate the two. If your God has no grace, then it ain't true. He's not the true God. But if he has grace but no truth, again, you're wrong. You've got to have them both. Second Corinthians 12, verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Was well, that not the story of all of us who were saved? It is the strength of Christ that is perfected. He says, therefore, most gladly, Paul says, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Colossians 2.10. This is one a lot of Christians don't believe. You are complete in him. You're complete in him. You don't need to go to the world to, how should I be a Christian? Um who is the head of all principality and power. Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Did not Hezekiah come boldly to the throne? He did not have to say, Isaiah, could you go pray for me? He went right to God. He just let it out. And so, this is why I'm, I'm not a fan of behavioral psychology. They have nothing for me. Um, I have Christ and he has all the answers to life. And I believe that. And I have lived that. And whatever I can't get, wherever I can't get the victory, his grace abounds. And nothing can take that away from me. Because of him. And that is true for all believers. And I think we should have a defiant spirit when it comes to these, when it comes to truth. We've got the truth. We're not saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I know there are other ways to have it. No, there's not. There's one way. And that's through Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, um, <clears throat> I know there's questions and there are answers for those questions too. And they are fair answers. Uh, verse 18. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. Uh, Psalm 39 uh, is a good place to compare with that. He's saying death stops life. 
uh, verse 19, the living, the living man, he shall praise you, you as I do this day. The father shall make known truth to the children. Well, it, tragically, it was wasted on Manasseh. Verse 20, Yahweh was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of Yahweh. The gratitude with joy. So he starts out saying, this is the writing, but it becomes a song. How can it not? Verse 21, now Isaiah said, let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil and he shall recover. Well, I don't like figs anyway. So I could, I could, if it were cherries, I said, no, you know what? I'm going to eat those. Uh, Anyway, uh, I know a lot of you like figs and does not have a food fight. Uh, This is um, out of sequence, but it's part of the story. And he just puts it in the end for whatever reason. Exodus 15, 20, for I am Yahweh who heals you. You We might say Jehovah Rapha. That's, He's the God who heals. And if he doesn't heal in this life, no one enters heaven limping. No one enters heaven with a cough, a sneeze, a bump, a bruise. We are made whole. So anyway, verse, 30, verse 22. And Hezekiah had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of Yahweh? So again, this is out of sequence. <clears throat> it takes place when Isaiah orders the figs. But it's back in the story before the sundial. And, and so, you know, if you, if you don't dig for the treasures, it won't yield. Uh, if, if you're not from following, you, you get side, sidetracked very easily. Uh, and he's going to, when he tells him, this is the sign, and you're going to go to the temple, and you're going to thank the Lord. But he leaves out, because he's not told, Isaiah. Uh, oh, by the way, you're going to get pride. And God's going to deal with that. <laughs> So, and then you're going to also be immature when the Babylonians come. But let's not, let's just review this. Uh, there are seven things contained in this section uh, that uh, have to do with what God granted. I have heard your prayer. God hears all prayers. I have seen your tears. God is fully acquainted with our grief. I will heal you. God does heal. Uh, the ultimate healing coming at death. Uh, you shall go up to the house of Yahweh. Uh, worship is a part of our witness. I will add to your days 15 years. Healing is temporary in this life. I will deliver you and this city. There will not be a coincidence when the Assyrians are defeated. It is prophetic and it happened. I will defend the city. Fulfilled. 185,000 Assyrian troops wiped out. We can do chapter 39. It won't take long because, um, um, well, let's just see what happens. Well, where else you got to go? I'm going to drag this out because we've got furniture to move. I'm going to drag this out until Tuesday. Anyway, chapter 39. Now, uh, you know, he's just, he, he loses, he becomes immature. He makes a, a rookie mistake. And his pride set it up. Second Chronicles 32, In those days, Hezekiah was sick near death, and he prayed to Yahweh, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself 
for the pride of his heart and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now, I know I read that from Kings, but Chronicles gives us even a little bit more. He lifted up his heart. He humbled himself. Uh, The pride was he lifted up his heart. The humbling was the cure. So, uh, you know, we should learn what's classified in life. There are things that people tell you. They confide in you. Not for you to broadcast it. And, uh, you know, I like when some years ago uh, someone told me a secret and then the other person knew, didn't know the secret, but wanted me to tell them. And so I said, well, can you keep a secret? And he said, yeah. I said, me too. And that was that. They did not like that. I have made of a lot of enemies. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Chronicles adds to this story because these are the ambassadors coming from Babylon, who at this point is not a big player in the world, but they, they're growing. He says, however, regarding, uh, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. That really, that Hezekiah would know, and so would those observing and so there gives us a little insight of what's happening. God is going to pull back and say, okay, Hezekiah, based on all you know, let's see how you, what you do with this. Uh, well, presumption is action without justification. And that's what gets him in this problem. Gets, he had no reason to do this. He couldn't justify it. If Isaiah had come earlier and said, what are you doing? It wouldn't have happened this way. But it, after the horses are out, then what's the point of closing the doors? Verse 1 at that time, Meroadak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. Uh, so they probably want help. They want an alliance with, with Judah. They're looking toward the future. This is probably going to really irritate the Assyrians, and they, now they're going to come after they find out the Babylonians had been there because Babylon is a threat on their southern, on Assyria's southern borders or western. A um, hundred years later, the Babylonians will defeat the Assyrians and the Egyptians, and they will come the world power in that region, and they will take Jerusalem. Uh, verse 2, And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all of his armory, his emails, his text, all that was found among his treasures, it was nothing in the house or in the dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. This takes time. It didn't like, you know, this is not like a, a PowerPoint presentation. He's taking them around the city. Let's go to the armory. And when we're done here, the house of spices, you've got to see what we have got <laughs> Do you like curry? Uh, Anyway, uh, so he gives them the tour. And yeah, he should have known better. Uh, These men are going to see all the stuff that people want to steal. Verse 3, then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country from Babylon. (laughs) So he's so Naive. It's, it's, you know, the pride, we got past that, but now he's just immature. 
But I love that the man of God is ready to protect the interests of God. Though a little late. Reminds me of Paul writing to Titus. He says to that pastor, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. But if I rebuke, they'll leave the church. And he says, let no one despise you. That's Isaiah. He doesn't care what the king thinks. He's going to give the message. Probably what got him killed, if, history, if Jewish history is correct. Verse Isaiah. Uh, chapter 39, verse 4 now. And he said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Verse 6. Behold, the days are coming. And all that is in your house, and what your fathers have accumulated until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. Verse 7. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they will be eunuchs in the, play, in the palace of the king of Babylon. It's a hundred years from now. It's all going to be fulfilled. These men didn't live to see it, but they knew it was true. If Isaiah said it, it's true. This is a central prophecy for Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. They had these prophecies. And they looked at them, and they said, that's us. Just as Isaiah said, it had happened. It's not random. We weren't just a weak nation that got overthrown with all the other ones. We defied our God, and he withdrew from us in consequence. And the righteous suffered with the unrighteous. Isaiah knew that Babylon, not Assyria, would take Jerusalem. And he had already given prophecies about Babylon. So Hezekiah should have known better. Um, running out of time, I'm, well, I'm all right. Second uh, Kings 24. Surely the commandment of Yahweh uh, came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all he, that he had done. Manasseh is the son that was born during that 15-year span. Whether he was or not is not the main point. The main point, he was wicked. And he had such evil influence that God said, I can't reverse this, or really I'm not going to reverse it. It's going to run its course. Manasseh gets saved later in his reign, and it's a genuine salvation. But the damage is done. What a message to say to somebody who's not saved. You, you might get saved later or not. But how much damage are you doing now? You're going around, you know, just creating more problems because you won't submit. Verse 8. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of Yahweh which you have spoken is good, for he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Again, uh, this is a rhetorical question. It comes earlier in the, in the story. Uh, and it's, it's quite natural. Um, he puts so much into serving God. To drawing the people back, as, as I've said. He loved the Lord. He loved God's word. He loved his prophet. He loved the righteous that were before him. He, he took the Psalms of David. He, he organized Psalms. Uh, the, the Proverbs of Solomon, he, he was a man of God's word. And it, would have, it was devastating to him to think that because of this one blunder, that he's going to lose it all and be punished like that. And so, yeah, he, he was, David, uh, Isaiah, is it going to happen in my lifetime? And it would have been a heavy blow if he said, yeah, but he didn't say, yeah. He says, it's not going to be in your days. And he goes, Whew, I am so happy about that. Well, what should he have been sad? Well, I wish it did happen in my day. So uh, it's a very natural 
uh, part of the story. He is a good king, and I close with this statement about him. 2 Kings 18.3, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. Good king, made bad mistakes, hard lessons, but he recovered. And we'll see him in, in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, your word abounds with beauty when we compare what this world has to offer with what you have. It's no contest. We love you. We worship you alone. Uh, may you get us all home safe. In the name of Jesus, amen.